Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I implore Iodia, and I implore Syntyche, to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, hope these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and, heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned, in whatever state I am, to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well that you have shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, but especially those who are, the ho- who are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. You enjoyed our study in Philippians. I'm hoping that this has been a a profitable, fruitful study for each of you as we've gone through the the book. We're going to, Lord willing, finish the book here uh, this, this morning in the time that we have. And as we do so, uh, we'll be looking at the, the title here, uh, Ornaments of the Gospel. I believe here in the closing words of Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, we have uh, what I'll just call uh, some ornaments of the gospel that I think are on display here. And I want to be able to share those with you this morning. Before I do, I'm going to ask if you would to join me in a word of prayer. Lord, we've come to uh, the end of another book study here at Hope in Christ. And over the course of these 10 years as a church family, we've worked our way through uh, a few of your books uh, for which we're very grateful. Uh, We've been able to go through verse by verse and line by line and exploring the depth and riches of your holy word. And we thank you uh, for those opportunities. We thank you, Lord, for instructing us in your word. And as we draw the book of Philippians to a close today, I pray we'd be reminded of the gospel And the significance of making this gospel message known, not only in word, but in deed, by the way that we live. May our lives be attractive as we adorn the gospel with actions and in truth. Father, we pray that you would speak just now. That you would give us ears to hear the concluding word to the church at Philippi. And help us, Lord, to apply what's here, that we might go away changed, that we might go away different that we may go away renewed in the mind, transformed in the heart, amazed at your teaching once again. Lord, we thank you for your good word. And we pray that others would observe Christ only 
always living in us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the big idea for this morning, I just want to share that with you right up front. Ornaments of the gospel point to Christ. Ornaments of the gospel point to Christ. As we'll see in the text this morning, there are going to be four ornaments that we'll see from the text. And all of these point to Christ. All of these, as they're seen in our lives, ought to point other people to Christ. Ought to be observable from others that we belong to the family of God. Okay? Ornaments of the gospel point to Christ. Some questions to consider here up front. What are, uh, what ornaments of the gospel are hung, so to speak, from the tree of the text this morning as we look at verses 10 through 23? How do these particular ornaments of the gospel manifest the very presence of Christ? How does Paul describe these ornaments as he concludes this letter to the church at Philippi? What do these ornaments look like when they're manifested and exercised in our lives as Christ followers? How do these ornaments make the difference in our lives? What message does our life send to those in the world watching? Are they able to see these ornaments of the gospel adorning our lives? From the text, I'd like to deal with three main questions this morning. And we'll see these and we'll kind of overlap these as we go through talking about the ornaments. First of all, describing what the ornaments of the gospel are as found in these final verses. There'll be four of them that we'll cover. But also, how does Paul display these ornaments of the gospel in his life? And or how does he speak about these ornaments of the gospel in the lives of the church at Philippi? And then thirdly, really is more appointed, personal, in your lap, uh, take home, if you will, a uh, question for you from the text. Are the ornaments of the gospel on display in your life? How are these looking on you, in you, through you? Okay? Well, most of you probably need no introduction to an ornament. I would imagine the mention of the word brings to mind a few different things. You probably have a good handle on what an ornament is. A, a tree maybe for some of you comes to mind with ornaments uh, hanging on the tree. I, I was looking at a definition just to uh, come across a, a one. I, I found one talking about an ornament, an object used to beautify the appearance of something to which it is added or of which it is a part. It's, it's used to beautify the appearance of something to which it is added or of which it is a part. I was reminded of a couple passages of Scripture. One in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, where Peter says, Beloved, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may... By your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Even in this letter in Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, Paul's already mentioned. He says, but I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel so that it has become evident... It's become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. Now, I read these two passages of Scripture to ask you a question or two. First question is, are, are others able to observe? That's the word that Peter uses in chapter 2. Are others able to observe the ornaments of the gospel of your good works? A second question from Philippians 1 that I just read, are there any evident, that's the word that he uses there in Philippians 1, evident, are there any evident ornaments of the gospel on display in your life? Now, being in Christ, we are a part of his family. 
The Bible says that through faith in Christ, we are brought into God's family, adopted, in fact, into his family. We're called a child of God. Let's not lose the privilege that we have of being called a child of God. We bear the name of a Christ follower. And while we add nothing to Christ himself or to his gospel, we are a part of Christ, a member of his body, Corinthians 12 says. Which means our lives are representative of the one whose name we bear. We are, the Bible says, ambassadors now of our Lord Jesus Christ. What difference does that make? Our lives are now magnified. You know, I was thinking about this in terms of what I do with officiating. And back in the day, there were two officials that worked a game. And the two officials that worked a game, they, they called what they saw and, and the game rolled. And, and at the end of the game, you know, it might have been said that, hey, they just, they just missed some calls as part of being a human being. The game, the way it's played today, there's three guys now that officiate the games. And the game has become magnified under video. And the higher the level of game you work, the more magnified everything is now. In fact, they were saying in the championship game last year at the college level, there were some 26 camera angles to capture all of what was going on on the floor. See, things become very magnified, and our life in Christ now is magnified because of who we belong to now. We are Christ. We are, the Bible says, a new creation. Our life now is to be different. 2 Corinthians 5, old things have gone, new things have come. We are a new creation in Christ. We are now being put on display, not so that people can see us necessarily, but so that they can see Christ in us. Remember what Paul's already talking about, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Our words, our actions, our thoughts, our motives, they are now held to a higher standard being in Christ. When we become a part of the family of God, we are lights. Jesus said, you are lights in the world. Lights intended to shine, not to be hidden under a, a bushel. But we're to shine in this wicked, perverse generation around us. We are vessels through whom humility and service are intended to flow. The Bible is loaded with ornaments of the gospel. We're going to see four here this morning from Philippians. But the ornament that I'm speaking about right now here up front is one that we all need to consider as well. And that's you and you and you. We could go on down the road. Those of us here who are in Christ, I want you to consider and think about the high responsibility and awesome privilege, truly awesome privilege it is, to represent the King of Kings with this one life that we've been given. An ornament is used to beautify the appearance of something. And I would ask, are you beautifying the gospel by how you speak to others? Are you beautifying the gospel by your actions toward other people? Does the beauty of the gospel shine through you in how you handle conflicts and trials and hard times? You know, it's easy to love people that love you, isn't it? Pretty easy. Your life is either beautifying the gospel or profaning the gospel by how you handle the hard stuff that comes in life. Are you an ornament of the gospel to those around you? Any beauty in your life observable and evident? I'll use those two words. Any beauty in your life observable and evident, shining the spotlight upon the Christ who died for you. Now, ornaments as they are found on the tree, they typically share certain characteristics. Many of us receive ornaments as gifts don't we perhaps you can remember a certain ornament that was given to you you are the recipient of 
an ornament at Christmas time. Some of these ornaments are also, in fact, many of them, especially if we put them up on the tree, they're, they're visible. Not only are they received oftentimes, but they're visible. They're placed carefully on the tree. They're observable, evident to those who are looking. These ornaments are also unique. Many of them come in lots of different shapes and sizes. Some spark wonderful memories. Some tell a particular story. But they're unique, each one of the ornaments. All of these ornaments are also fitting. Ornaments belong on the tree. They're appropriate with the lights. They complement the tree. When you see a Christmas tree, you expect to see lights and ornaments on it. Ornaments are a fitting complement. So what are, as we look to Philippians 4, what are these ornaments of the gospel? As found in these last few verses. Let's look at the first one here, which is found in verse 10. We'll write the first one up here. Here's the first one from Philippians 4. Gratitude. Gratitude. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again. Care is the word here that's used for mindedness back in chapter 2, verse 2. Um, talking about of the same mind. Uh, this, this, I, this, this word is used many times in, in the book here of Philippians. But here it's, it's translated care, uh, your specific thought for me. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished, has blossomed. It's an agricultural term talking about what happens in the spring when the flowers bloom. Your care for me once again has flourished. It's sprouted again. Though you surely did care. In other words, you, you've had thought all along for me, church. Paul, Paul understands that they've been thinking about him for quite a long time now. They just lacked, what he says here, an opportunity. Gratitude. In fact, this is not the first time he's expressed his gratitude. Back in chapter 1, he says in verse 3, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine making requests for you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. We see here this ornament of gratitude, a spirit of thanksgiving. It's one of the reasons Paul, in fact, is writing this letter to the church at Philippi. One of the big reasons for writing is to say, thank you, church. Thank you for how you have ministered to my needs in furthering the gospel. This gratitude alludes to the gift. And we see that the gift was given by here in verse 18. This gift from Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus was a part of the Philippian church. And he was the messenger. He was the carrier of this particular gift. And isn't it interesting that we don't have all of the details of what the gift was? We know they gave something to Paul. Whether it was... Uh, money, finances, whether it was clothing, whether it was some books. I mean, we don't know. We don't know what all he, he was given. We know that he was taken care of, though. And for that, we see gratitude, a spirit of gratitude. And he's expressing this gratitude in the Lord. Notice he says, I rejoiced in the Lord. He's rejoicing in the Lord. You know, when we thank somebody, this is a great side note point for us all to remember. When we are wanting to extend gratitude towards someone for what they've done for us, it's best that it gets phrased. I think, I think we can use this as an example. Thank you. I'm, I'm grateful to the Lord for what you've done. I'm grateful to the Lord for how you've ministered. I'm grateful to the Lord for how you have served and met a need. Our gratitude to the Lord for how he's worked in and through the giver of the gift. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 8 and 9 Paul is talking to the church at Corinth and it's interesting there because he, he says, I, I, I robbed other churches. Obviously, he didn't literally rob them. What he's saying to them is that he actually took finances and resources from other churches instead of from Corinth. There were some who thought that Paul was all about just trying to get rich. And Paul is trying to make a point. I, I, I took nothing from you. In fact, 
the resources that I had, I got from somewhere else. But the point I want to make here is that those resources, as we read, he says, taking wages from them to minister to you there in Corinth. The question comes, who were these other churches? Paul says there in verse 9 of 2 Corinthians 11, When I was present with you and in need, I was a burden to no one. For what I lacked, the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied. The brethren who came from Macedonia. That would be those folks in Philippi. They were the ones who supplied Paul. In everything I kept myself from being burdensome to you, he says. Gratitude is an ornament of the gospel. Unfortunately, this ornament remains in the box for some. Rarely is it evident in some. Seldom is it observable to others. And the result? What's the result? Your life ends up looking a lot like those in the world around you. We're talking about ornaments of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And you know, I was reminded in Luke chapter 17 where Jesus heals ten lepers. You remember the story? Outcasts of society. Jesus is passing by and the lepers who are afar off. The Bible tells us they are afar off. Interesting phrase. And they cry out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. The text tells us that Jesus sends them to the priests. And the text says, as they went, they were cleansed. As they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, it says, when he saw that he was healed, returned. And with a loud voice, glorified God, fell down on his face, at his feet, and gave him thanks. And the text tells us he was a Samaritan. Instructive is what comes next from the mouth of Jesus. Were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? Where are the nine? Paul is grateful to the Lord for the Philippian church. Their partnership in the gospel, their giving, their support, their encouragement in his ministry, their sending of Epaphroditus with this most recent gift. Gratitude to God for furthering the gospel. The story of the lepers allows us to hear God's heart in regard to man's gratitude or lack thereof. Ten were cleansed, only one returned to say thank you. Now listen. We were all spiritual lepers of sorts, outcasts on the periphery, afar off, objects of his wrath, disobedient to God. But God stepped in, sent his son, and he stood in your place and mine as what we know as substitute. He did that at the cross, taking upon himself your sins. And he saved you from the penalty and the punishment of hell, eternal separation from God. And instead, what he did is he brought you through his death in the body and subsequent resurrection from the grave. He brought you to God, reconciled you to the Father, showered upon you his perfect righteousness, gave you a new family name, provided for you unlimited access to his father's throne. The blessings of heaven are now available to you because of what he accomplished and finished at the cross. And so I would ask, how is it that our lives can be marked with such ingratitude? How is that possible? having saved us from wrath to come, having saved us to live through Christ now. Christ, remember, 1 John says, he was manifested that we might live through him, that we might adorn his beauty, that we might make him glorious by how we live our lives. A spirit of gratitude is expected from a follower of Christ. Did you hear Jesus' words To the one who returned. Where are the nine? 
Apply that to your life, to your salvation in particular. You see, because the expectation from Christ himself is 100% when it comes to gratitude, not 10%. When you really step back and you consider what God's done in your life through Christ, how can you not turn back regularly, daily, Grateful to God for all that he's done. The first ornament of the gospel selected some ornaments. This first ornament of the gospel is gratitude. Gratitude. We need to be a grateful people. I believe the Bible here would tell us And teach us that very thing. Paul is grateful for the work of the church at Philippi. For their ministry and their care for him. And he's grateful in the Lord. And to the Lord. For their work in his life. As a side note here. As we think about gratitude. I'd like to express my gratitude to this church for your blessings over the past 10 years. Thank you for allowing me to have the opportunity to teach and preach God's word. Your support of me and my family is a great blessing. It's been a great blessing. And I thank the Lord for each one of you and your ongoing support these past Several years. So gratitude is the first ornament of the gospel in the text. Remember our big picture and theme. Ornaments of the gospel point to Christ. A spirit of gratitude reflects Christ. Here's the second ornament from the text. Found in verses 11 through 13. It's the ornament of contentment. Contentment. Not that I speak in regard to need. Paul is wanting them to understand. Hey, look, sometimes when you thank someone for a gift, you ever been in a situation where you thank someone for a gift, but sometimes the recipient maybe doesn't receive the thank you as you would like them to receive the thank you. Sometimes they receive the thank you as you want more of this. And twice here in this end of the letter, Paul is is trying to make very clear, I believe, I, I don't need any more gifts. That's not my point. My point is not that you give me anything else. In fact, he's going to go on in just a moment and say, I am filled to the full. I have all that I need. But he prefaces there in verse 11, not that I speak in regard to need. He's wanting them to know, hey, what I'm writing to you here has nothing to do with my current need. He goes on, for I have learned, I have learned. The, the, the core word there is the same word we learned, uh, heard earlier, uh, mathetes, disciple. Right? I have learned, I, I've learned over time in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be 12, by, by the way, verse 12 is going to expound on the statement 11. And then 13 is actually going to summarize this section on contentment. Verse 12, I know, I know how to be abased, abased to, to be made low, to, to be laid low. It's the word uh, used of Christ in chapter 2, how he came and humbled himself. Paul says, I know what it is to, to be abased. I, I know how to abound, parasua, to, 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 to be filled to the full. Everywhere in all things I have learned, there's the word again, I've learned both to be full Stuffed in my belly and hungry without food. Both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What is contentment? The word itself in the original language has in mind to to be independent of external circumstances. 
It speaks of self-sufficiency and competency. And the word actually comes from the Stoic school of philosophy that taught that man should be sufficient to himself for all things. That's really the word was used in that context. Paul takes this word and uses it really in a different way. Um, We see this, one writer says that the Stoic ideal was a kind of self-contained superman who could rise above it all in independent self-sufficiency and serenity. In other words, they had it all in control. They didn't need any outside help. I got this. I can do this. That was the Stoic school thought philosophy in terms of where the word kind of is captured and, and sits in. Paul takes the word and he wants the church to understand As a principle, in many ways, yes, uh, it's used in, in a similar fashion, but he's wanting to make very clear that Paul is thinking of contentment. His sufficiency is not rooted in self. His sufficiency is in Christ alone. Instead of an independence grounded in self, Paul's life was dependent upon his Lord. In fact, he's already said that he had come to view all things a loss for the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. His contentment was in Christ alone. Jesus practiced contentment while here on earth. Do you remember? Jesus was always only about his Father's will, wasn't he? It's interesting, even as a 12-year-old. Remember when his parents couldn't find him? And they had to go back and travel. Found him. He was found by his parents. And, and they, he, they found him. He wasn't playing frivolous games. He wasn't sitting, wasting his time playing video games. What was he doing? He was found in the temple discoursing with those inside. He was about his father's business. From an early age, he learned to be content with his father's will. He didn't get sidetracked. He didn't get sidelined with his purpose. In fact, what we see in Jesus' life is that he accepted joyfully the father's will for him. Amy Carmichael had written a poem The poem's title is, In Acceptance Lieth Peace. And in the first four verses, she portrays the suffering speaker in the poem as seeking peace in forgetting, uh, seeking uh, peace in restless endeavor, seeking peace in aloofness, and then fourth stanza, even in submission to the inevitable. Listen to the fifth verse. The sufferer finds relief in these words in the fifth stanza. He said, I will accept the breaking sorrow which God tomorrow will to his son explain. Then did the turmoil deep within him cease. Not vain the word, not vain, for in acceptance lieth peace. And goes on and talks about this acceptance and defining what this acceptance, Jerry Bridges uh, plays on this. And he says, acceptance means that you accept your circumstances from God, trusting that he unerringly knows what is best for you and that in his love, he purposes only that which is best. Having then reached a state of acceptance, you can ask God to let you use your difficult circumstance to glorify him, to make him Glorious, to shine for him, to be the ornament of the gospel he intends you to be. Because you see, when you come to accept what God has for you, you can move then from victim mindset to an attitude of stewardship with your life. Paul learned the secret of being content. Notice that he learned it. He learned it. Contentment doesn't come automatically. It's learned over a period of time, oftentimes learned through hard, challenging circumstances, uncomfortable, difficult circumstances. 
I was reminded of this as I was thinking about it. some 11 years ago now. I had taken Avery. We went to a missions trip in Jamaica. And the first two nights in Jamaica was a large test for me. Perhaps I've shared this story with some of you. But as I recall, 11 years ago, about eight men, we were in this one small room. We had four bunks. Avery was on top, I was on the bottom. And we had been provided these little itty-bitty box fans. And I'm, I'm grateful, by the way, for it. Um, and I remember going to sleep. And I remember thinking, this fan's not doing it. This is not doing it. And I would fall asleep for half hour, an hour. I would wake up in a pool full of sweat. I'd roll over, and the fan would dry off that side of the bed. And an hour later, I'd wake up in another sweat, a mess. And for two nights, I was miserable. I, I had a spirit of discontentment at work. I didn't immediately accept my circumstances. I flat out had a complaining spirit. And it took a few nights for me to learn contentment. To realize that this was the life for those who lived in Jamaica. It was hot. This was their environment. And my complaining and my belly aching wasn't going to change the Jamaican weather patterns. But God had to do a work in me. And it took two nights. The third night was a whole lot better. But it took two nights. Of me just complaining. Just, I I was miserable. Maybe you've been there. And had a complaining spirit about a situation. And you've also been able to see the process of the Lord teaching you to be content. To accept his ways. Paul was laid low, and he was filled to the full, the text says. He experienced what it was to have a full belly, and he was was experiencing what it was to go without. And he summarizes his state with these familiar words in verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. These are probably some of the most familiar words in all of Scripture. Artwork, pictures. We might post this, write this, memorize this, have this written up, put wherever in our home, in our car, in our office. But these words, like all of the biblical text, are controlled, as one writer said, by a context. One writer says that Paul is confident here that he will be divinely strengthened to do anything and everything that God calls him to do. That's a, that's a very important distinction here. Anything and everything that God calls him to do. Not only could Paul be content and confident in every circumstance, he could also be sure that he would be equipped with divine power to deal with it. So what I want you to see here in chapter 4, verse 13, as we think about this ornament of the gospel, contentment. Contentment is not a wish list, but it is a confidence that's rooted in the phrase, whatever, we're going to sing that in just a moment, whatever my lot. Thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. Whatever my lot given by God. This is not, 413 is not some blank check or magic formula to recite for whatever you want to do. You know, I have aspirations one day of playing the banjo. One day, I'm going to play the banjo. But if I was to stand up here before you right now this morning and say, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I'm going to tell you something. You'd be sadly disappointed to hear what I got to play on the banjo. I I like to play the game of golf. If I was to tell you this morning, hey, we're going to go out and say, let's imagine that it was nice and sunny and we're going to go out later today and we're going to hit the golf ball and I'm going to shoot under par. I can do all things. Through Christ who gives me strength. 
you're going to be sadly mistaken because I'm not going to come close to par. I'm giving those as examples. The verse isn't some, I can do it, I can do it. What is it that God has called you to do? And know that what he's called you to do, he's going to empower you, infuse his power in and through you, through his spirit, to work out these things. Remember we already heard in Philippians 2, work out your salvation as God is at work in you. What's he doing in you? What's he, he's working out what he wants to accomplish in and through you. West translates this verse 13. He says, I am strong for all things in the one who constantly infuses strength in me. So the first ornament of the gospel we saw here displayed is gratitude. And let's pull out a second one here. We've got, a, we've got an angel here. This will be our uh, contentment ornament. So we have gratitude. We have contentment. Remember, ornaments of the gospel, they point to Christ. So when we're talking about gratitude, we're talking about a spirit of contentment. Those who have a spirit of contentment, they point, their lives point to Christ. Because they're not about getting as much as they can. They're about surrendering themselves to Christ and allowing God to work in and through them. And we accept what Christ offers us. And the work that he calls us to do, we do with a a right spirit and a right heart. And we do it well because we're pleasing the Lord with our life. Okay? Here's the third one. 14 through 20. Generosity. Generosity. After saying, I can do all things to Christ who strengthens me, he says, nevertheless... You've done well. You've done well. In the original language, it's, it's poor English, but it's great Greek. Uh, you did good. That's what, he's, that's what he's saying. Good job. Thanks for being generous. You shared, you partnered. There's that word again, koinonia, right? You shared, you, you fellowshiped in my distress, in my trouble. And he says, now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, that's the, about 10 years ago from when he's writing, when he was actually there, 10 years ago, at the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared or partnered with me concerning giving and receiving. These are transactional terms, giving and receiving. Uh, an exchange that took place. By the way, giving and exchanging, giving and receiving, it's, it's also not only is it an accounting terminology, um, crediting and, and, and debiting kind of accounts, but it also takes place between those who are uh, friends, who are close. And we've we already seen that Paul has this love and affection for the church. And so he's, he's pointing out here, hey, you all have been a part of this. You've shared with me concerning giving and receiving. No one did but you. In verse 16, for even in Thessalonica, Paul says, when I went to Thessalonica, you sent aid. The word there is more than one occasion you sent aid to me. You were the one who was giving. And you gave for my, I want you to notice the word there in verse, seven, uh, verse, verse 16. You gave for my necessities. You gave the things that were needed. Verse 17, not that I seek the gift. There, there's that phrase again. He's putting that forward before the church, wanting them to know, hey, uh, what I'm saying here, I'm not saying so that you give me more gifts. I'm not after the gift. And we can be pretty certain that Paul's not after the gift in light of what he says here in the closing words. He doesn't even talk about the gift other than the fact he's, he's grateful to the Lord for it. What's Paul after? Paul is seeking the fruit that will be abounding, that, that will credit to their account. So, so here's what he's saying. Love this. He's saying that, hey, church, I want you to know something. The gifts that you've given to me, whatever those gifts ended up being, we don't know for sure, but whatever it was, Paul's saying all of those gifts given here are going to serve as credit on your account in heaven. Doesn't that remind you, church, of the passage in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount? Store up for yourselves treasures where? 
heaven. Not here on earth. Why? Why not here on earth? Because he says, if you store them up here on earth, uh, moth and rust are going to destroy. Thieves are going to break in and steal. But if you store them up in heaven, can't be touched. And that's exactly what's going on here. This ornament of the gospel that Paul is bringing forward is one of generosity. He's pointing to the church at Philippi and and showing and, and explaining how thankful he is for their generosity. Verse 18. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received, having received. I am full, having received. This is terminology, again, accounting terminology, saying essentially he wants the church to know. It would be like him, uh, if he could, laying out and showing to the church as this letter is being written. Hey, I want you to see I have a receipt in hand, paid in full. You have given plenty, paid for. I have received all. I'm full. And I've received it, verse 18, from, here's Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus was the messenger who sent all of these things and provided the support and ministry encouragement to Paul in prison. I've received from him the things sent from you. How does he describe these things? As a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Those those descriptors there uh, really are characteristic in many ways of the kind of sacrifice that we read about in the Old Testament. Sacrifices that were described back in Leviticus uh, talk about how they are good and pleasing. It's the same terminology here that Paul is using. This offering that was given to him, this gift that was given to him out of generosity from the church, it was well-pleasing to God. He wants them to know that. It was put to good use. Paul makes clear he's not in need of any additional gifts. He's displaying his gratitude For their generosity. And he's communicating that he is content with what they've given. They've partnered with him on multiple occasions in the work of the gospel. The ornament of generosity is being put on display through the church at Philippi. They were not only the first to give to Paul's work in the Lord, but they kept on giving. They gave above and beyond, in fact, we read in Corinthians. They were generous to the point of sacrificial They understood how to come alongside and truly help the gospel work move forward. In chapter 4, verse 17, Paul once again reminds the church that he's not after another gift. He's seeking the fruit that would serve as credit toward their spiritual account. He's concerned about their spiritual well-being. It's it's true what, what Paul says to the church of Corinth in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7, that God loves a cheerful giver. A cheerful giver. Not one who takes out a wallet or writes a check begrudgingly, knowing it's his duty. God loves a cheerful giver. It's one way we can shine forth the ornament of generosity. See, generosity is not about taking from the the, the surplus that you have and giving to the Lord. Generosity is not about how much you give. Generosity is really stemmed from the heart, isn't it? It's, it's a heart thing. And we see this with the story in the Gospels of the widow who had but two mites. And they were observing Jesus was using this as an object lesson for his followers and saying, hey, look, guys, look. Look at, the, look at all these people coming in with all their money, emptying all their money, and it looks really good. Guys, look at that widow right there. I want you to notice something about that widow. She put in two small coins But guys, I want you to understand something. Those two coins she put in, she gave all of what she had. Jesus is teaching the disciples and us a valuable lesson here. Generosity is not how much one gives. It has everything to do with the heart. What's behind the giving? See, when your life intersects with that of Jesus, generosity comes into light. You remember the account in Luke 19, Zacchaeus? I love what one writer says about him in this, this particular passage. Zacchaeus, you know, the little guy in the tree, saw Jesus coming, and Jesus said, hey, come down, I'm going to come to your house. Can you imagine Zacchaeus, how excited he would have been? Jesus is coming to my house. And one writer says here, he says, he went to Jesus Mastered by the passion to get. 
Remember, he was a tax collector. He, he excelled at ripping people off. He went to Jesus, mastered by the passion to get. He left, mastered by the passion to give. You see, he gave half his possessions to the poor, and and those that he cheated, he gave back four times the amount. Listen, Christ makes all the difference. Generosity shows up. It's evident. It's observable in one who knows Jesus Christ. Paul alludes to the generous gift from the church there in verse 18. Notice what he says in verse 19 to this generous church. He says, and my God shall supply or fulfill all your need. Notice that word need, you might underline that. All your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Notice, the text is not advocating that the church at Philippi is promised health, wealth, and prosperity in this life. It's important we see that. They're promised a full supply of what's needed. Their need would be supplied according to God's riches. What do you know, church, about the supply of God's riches? Let me give you one word. Infinite. In Christ, his riches never run dry. He always has exactly what's needed. God is a generous God. James chapter 1 tells us that when we pray to him about wisdom, which we all need, we pray to him for wisdom. And we ask him knowing that God will be generous. He's a generous God. He gives to all without finding fault. He's a giving God. How many of you here can testify to God's generous spirit, his abundant giving? You see, when we think about his generosity, this ties into what we said earlier about being grateful. If you've experienced the gift of God's generosity in your life, that ought to pour over and out in our lives. We love because he first loved us. He was generous. He gave. God gave his son. For God so loved that he gave. See, this passage here in 14 through 20 really in many ways is talking about what's required. It's this contrast between what's required versus what's desired. What's the need versus what's my desire? What's my want? And I think here he's talking about this church and he's seeing that this church was generous in the way they provided for Paul's needs. The Bible says to seek first his kingdom. All these other things will be added to you, right? Seek first his kingdom. So the first ornament of grace is gratitude. Second one is contentment. The third one, let's see if I've got a third one in here. Here we go. There's a third one. And this third one here will serve as our uh, generosity ornament of the gospel. We got one more here. And really, this is the closure and conclusion of the message, so hang with me. Um, remember our big idea, ornaments of the gospel, they point to Christ. Gratitude, one who's filled with gratitude, one who's filled with contentment, one filled with generosity. Here's the last one. Grace. Grace. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you. But especially those who are of Caesar's household. The grace, there it is. This is the way he ends the letter. It's a blessing. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. I want you to notice that he begins with grace. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. In chapter 1 verse 2. He ends with grace. What we have here in these last three verses are greetings and grace. I I want you to see here as we look at the text and we think about grace. That first line in verse 21, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. If you recall earlier, there were 
a couple of women who were having some issues and he calls them to be of the same mind. In fact, he calls a, a, a true companion to come alongside these women and help these women. We see throughout this letter there are some things that Paul is addressing to the church that needs correction. A lot of, a lot of what's written here is not uh, corrective in terms of doctrine per se, but there were some relational aspects to the church at Philippi that needed work. Paul might have known some of these people, perhaps, uh, that, that he's addressing. He, he does mention these two women by name. But I point out verse 21, greet every saint in Christ Jesus for a reason. I would imagine that Paul, as Paul is writing, moved by the Holy Spirit, Paul also realizes that every single one of the parts of the body at Philippi are at different levels of maturity in Christ Jesus. He understands those things. One thing that Paul also understands is the grace of God. And I find it interesting that he says, greet every saint, every one of them. Every one of them. Even, even those two women who argue something's going on there, there's conflict at some level. Greet every one of them. Sometimes when we get to the closure of a letter, we, we, we tend to just take it for granted and pack up and maybe move on to the next book. All of Scripture is inspired by God. It's all profitable. I think there's something here in these last few verses for us to learn. Paul has something to say to every single one of the saints in the church. Every single one of them. Greet every one of them. Paul has a love for all of them. And church, as we sit here today, and we look around the room, and we see one another, and we see that um, not everyone is maybe like you in all of these ways. We're all a little bit different. We're all unique. That's, that's a good thing that in some ways that we are unique. There's a diverse body. But one of the main points that Paul has been talking about throughout this whole book is that of unity. Being of the same mind. Having the mind of Christ. Operating in a spirit of humility. And many of these things that I just mentioned could also be put under the banner of ornaments of the gospel. Because you see, when all of these are being manifested, don't they tend to point other people to Christ? Don't they tend to be different, much different than that of the world? Grace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. There's one more here. It didn't have a, an ornament that said grace on it. How's joy? Might be fitting too in light of the fact that We've been talking about full-time joy in this whole book. Full-time joy. I would ask how we began this series many weeks ago. How's your full-time joy in the Lord? I would point you to these ornaments of the gospel that we see here in the passage of Scripture. Gratitude, contentment, generosity, and grace. Are these ornaments... We need to understand we've received these. These are gifts from God. Are we making them visible to others? Do we realize that they are unique gifts and that you are unique in Christ to put on display these ornaments of the gospel? I want you to see that as a follower of Jesus Christ, putting on these ornaments of the gospel is fitting it's fitting, just like it's fitting to hang an ornament on a Christmas tree. It's fitting and right for you to put on display the gospel, the good news message of Jesus Christ. Ornaments of the gospel point to Christ. Church, will you point others to Jesus Christ? This Christmas time of year, some of you have already spent some time with family. Some of you are yet this week, today, maybe, tomorrow, this week, spending time with family. What better time to practice putting forth these ornaments of the gospel, putting them into play, exercising these ornaments, seeing that they're evident and observable to those around you for the sake and for the glory of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this good word. I thank you, Lord, for these ornaments of the gospel. 
Impress upon each one of us, Lord, the need to have a spirit of gratitude. Impress upon each one of us to be content with whatever our lot. To be content to not be, uh, have a spirit of complaining, a spirit of bitterness, a woe is me mentality, victim mindset. Lord, I pray you would take those things away. Help us to be content with Christ and with all that you give. Father, help us to be generous from the heart, cheerful givers. Help us to understand where we're to be storing our treasures, not here on earth, but in heaven. Father, help us as we are recipients of grace, your grace, this grace by which we're saved. Grace, by definition, is something we don't deserve. We don't merit it. We don't don't work hard to get it. You have freely given it to us. The Bible says that it's by grace that we're saved through faith. That not of our own, lest any one of us should boast. That's what we're prone to do, is boast and think of ourselves. But Lord, I pray that we would operate in the spirit of humility because when we operate in that spirit of humility, the Bible says that that God's, the door of his grace opens up to us. The Bible says he resists the proud, but to the humble, he pours out his grace. Oh Lord, I pray it would be our desire to have your grace poured out in our lives each day, that we might be faithful, available, teachable vessels, useful to the master, that we might truly beautify the gospel message with our lives, pointing others always only unto Christ. In Christ's name we pray, amen.